Colin, and uh, like Steve mentioned, if it's your first time here, uh, we're just really appreciate that you come and be with us today, spend some time with us. So I'd love to meet you, hear your story, hear how you got connected here. But if we've never had a chance to meet, uh, I lead United, our young adult ministry here, which is an absolute blast, so fun to be a part of. Uh, I would say if you're a young adult in this room, haven't had a chance to get connected to community, I'd love to help you do that. But then uh, every once in a while, I'll also have the chance to uh, teach here on the weekends. And so uh, just recently, my wife, Emily, and I, we got to go on a pretty incredible trip, kind of a once-in-a-lifetime trip with her family out to uh, Grand Teton National Park. And so I don't know if you guys have ever been out here before, but if you ever get the chance, do it. It's, it's awesome. It's absolutely beautiful. So here was Emily and I up in the mountains there uh, as we were hiking and just exploring this like ridiculously beautiful mountain range. So much fun. And so uh, really cool trip. But one of the coolest things we actually got to do on that trip was uh, go whitewater rafting as well, which was, uh, again, just an unbelievable experience. So this is the Snake River, uh, kind of one of the rivers that flows out of that mountain range there. Uh, And it had some class three rapids, which were pretty cool. And so something ridiculous, like over two million gallons per minute of water flow through that uh, that river. Uh, and so it, it produces a pretty strong current and some pretty strong rapids. And actually, these <laughs> rapids were so strong that our uh, guide instructor, uh, she mentioned that, hey, if we happen to fall out during this trip, it's pretty much useless trying to swim back to the boat. The current was just too strong to fight against. And so she said, what, what you need to do is basically just let the current take you away. Let it take you away through the rapids and to kind of spit you out in the next calm spot in the river and basically just like pray you don't hit a rock or a tree or something, right? And so uh, it, was, it was pretty cool, right? So here we were, uh, there I am, and uh, you know, I was, I was a little bit scared, but also as you can see, there was like little kids and they weren't scared, so I couldn't really show that, you know? But uh, luckily, luckily none of us fell out, right? It was, it was a pretty awesome trip uh, and just a, a whole lot of fun. Right. And so as I was thinking about this experience, even whitewater rafting, it kind of reminded me of the series that we've been in here at Grace for the past six weeks, uh, journeying through the Old Testament book of Daniel. And so we've been calling this series Living in Exile because uh, Daniel and his friends, they were swept up into exile by the great currents that is like this great nation of Babylon. Right? And so Daniel and his, his friends, they were Israelites, uh, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. But the book of Daniel begins by telling us that God's chosen people were actually captured by the Babylonians, and that the Babylonians dispersed them all throughout the nation, and then they basically tried to get them to conform to their culture, to their customs, 
and to their values, right? That's kind of what we see happening at the beginning of this book. And so, for example, Daniel and his friends, they're given new Babylonian names, they're forced to learn a new language, and they're constantly pressured to bow down to Babylon and its way of life. And I'm sure for Daniel and his friends, they thought, man, how in the world are we going to resist this current, this cultural current that is trying to sweep them away, right? But as we see in this book, they somehow find a way to show resolved faith. What we've been saying is that Daniel and his friends, they don't just blend into Babylon. They don't just fight back and retaliate against Babylon, but they shine brightly in Babylon, right? They illuminate, and they find a way to show this resolved faith. We see them walk this very hard-to-walk line of remaining faithful to God and his way of life while still engaging in and being a blessing to the nation that they found themselves in, right? And so, um, as Steve even mentioned, we, I guess we can see that this is probably a pretty timely series for where we are at in our world, uh, as we kind of live as exiles for those of us who follow Jesus as well, right? Because whether you're a follower of Jesus in this room or not, we all have in common that we are constantly bombarded with new ways of thinking, with new values we're, we're told we should adopt, and new ways of life that we're thought to, you know, try out living, right? And so the good thing about this book is it gives us a, a vision. It gives us a way to resist the pressure to drift and compromise maybe the way of life that Jesus has called us to. And so the way we've been describing this uh, resisting, the way of resisting this drift is actually through a prayer and an outline for this series. And so here it is. Um, I'll just read it to us because that's kind of what we've been doing each week, but it's an awesome prayer. It says, Father in heaven, By your power and grace, help me be resolved. Resolve to pray as a first response, not a last resort. Resolve to love and obey you no matter the outcome. Resolve to trust your sovereignty in times of uncertainty. Resolve to walk humbly in an age of pride. And resolve to live with integrity in an age of compromise. And so this is an outline for our series, but what we've been saying is our hope that it's not just that, but it's our prayer and our collective heartbeat for those who follow Jesus here at this church, right? And so now that we are in the last week of the series, week six, we're going to be looking at this last line right here in this prayer, resolve to live with integrity in an age of compromise. And so I'm very excited to talk about this. And I do want to say, too, if uh, you haven't been able really to make it, through us with, uh, make it through the series with us and everything, or maybe one of these topics looks pretty interesting to you, you can catch up with us in this series by checking out these messages on our website, on our podcast. I think you can even probably find them on YouTube as well. But it's been in a really awesome and timely series, so I encourage you to do that. But like I said, we're going to be looking at this last line here. And in order to do that, we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 6. So would you guys actually find your way to Daniel chapter 6? It'll be on page 725 in those Bibles under your seats. So you can find your way there. I want to say, too, that um, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we say this every week, but we think it's really awesome that you would have your own copy of God's Word. So feel free to take one of those Bibles under the seats and make it your own. But uh, today we will be in this chapter, really a a famous, very famous chapter of the Bible in Daniel chapter 6. I would say that even if you're in this room and you're not really that familiar with the Bible, maybe you're new to Jesus or new to the Bible, I would bet that maybe you are at least a little bit familiar with the content of this chapter. Because in this chapter, we have the famous story of Daniel and the lion's den. 
right? And just like Tony mentioned a couple weeks back when uh, we were in Daniel chapter 3 about the story of Daniel's friends in the furnace, I think there's actually a little bit of danger that comes when we view a passage this familiar, right? And that's because for many of us, the way we view this passage is it's like this cute little kid story. Uh, because that's how it was introduced to many of us, right? Whether that was through Veggie Tales or whatever it was, right? That's kind of how we can view a passage like this. And that's awesome. Like, it's awesome that kids can learn about these incredible passages and stories in the Bible. That's a great place to start. Uh, but the problem is, we can't stay there, right? Because I, I think we need to move past that in our view of this chapter. Because just like Daniel chapter 3, I think Daniel chapter 6 is an incredibly powerful and an incredibly subversive story. And I think if our hope is to resist this drift, resist this current that we are facing in our world, and to not compromise on the life that God calls us to, I think it has incredible insights to help us do that. All right. And so uh, my plan today is basically just to work uh, my way through this incredible passage, to kind of check out the story, and then we'll circle uh, back around at the end to kind of talk about some takeaways that I think will be relevant for us today. So... That's the plan. Here we go. We'll start in verse 1. So here's Daniel 6, verse 1. It says, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. And the satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. So the beginning of the chapter introduces us to this guy named Darius, right? And so who's Darius? Well, if you were with us last week, you might remember that we talked about uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, not to be confused with Belteshazzar, which is Daniel's Babylonian name, which is pretty confusing, right? But Belshazzar dies in his pride at the end of that chapter. And just like that, the Babylonian Empire becomes the Persian Mede Empire. And we're introduced to this new king named Darius, who has a much easier name to pronounce, which is really good, right? And so Darius kind of enters the scene now as the new king. Uh, and just like that, one superpower fell, and another one rises up in its place, right? And so as we can see, Daniel lived in a very turbulent time in history. But as we're going to see in this chapter, Daniel found a way to remain the same. And so he even maintained his job as one of the top rulers kind of in the kingdom, as we've kind of seen throughout this story, because the first thing Darius does is basically he wants to set up his government structure. And so he uh, appoints 120 satraps, or like government officials, with three administrators over top of them, one of which is Daniel, right? And so here's Daniel with a new king in a new empire with all new pressures probably to compromise his lifestyle. But look at what Daniel does. Verse 3, it says, Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And so I think we see something pretty consistent with Daniel so far in this verse, right? Uh, it points out that God had given Daniel some exceptional qualities. Daniel had some special wisdom and understanding that I think was one of the reasons he so consistently kind of rose to the top ranks in any government system he found himself in. And Darius quickly realized this, and he was definitely pretty pumped about having this guy on his team. So he appoints Daniel not just as like the top, one of the top three rulers, but as like the top ruler over the whole kingdom. Now, no one is as powerful as Daniel except the king himself. 
I think we also see here that uh, consistent with the rest of Daniel's life, Daniel wasn't afraid to involve himself and engage in a potentially corrupt government system that would even set itself up in opposition against God, right? The Persians, they weren't too different from the Babylonian Empire. And King Darius, as we're going to see later on in this chapter, he's not too different from the Babylonian kings we've seen so far in the book of Daniel. But still, uh, rather than Daniel isolate himself, he involves himself in being a blessing to this nation that he found himself in, right? And because of that, he stands out. He distinguishes himself through his hard work in blessing this nation. But not everyone was as excited about having Daniel on the team as Darius was. Verse 4 says, at this, meaning at Daniel's promotion, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. So Daniel's fellow co-workers, not too excited about this dude's promotion. So they're like, well, maybe we'll conduct a little investigation against this guy, right? Maybe we'll try to find some grounds uh, for charges against Daniel. And so maybe this is hard for some of us to believe, but try to imagine a world where politicians like personally attack one another to get ahead. I'm just kidding, right? Like, this is exactly what we would expect, right? Like, this is the world we live in today, right? And so, um, you know, whether it's politics or really any job, right, when there's a promotion, uh, jealousy easily creeps in. And then all of a sudden, there can be a power struggle. And that's exactly what we see here with these government officials. They they decide to mount, like, a, a smear campaign, basically, against Daniel and his image, Right. And so after conducting their, insta- uh, their investigation, though, the Bible says that they were unable to do this. Why? Because they could literally find no corruption in Daniel, which is just incredible, right? The Bible says that Dan- this, is, this is the results of their investigation. Daniel was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. That's incredible, you know? You know, they probably thought, well, maybe if we can't find some charges against Daniel's, like, professional career, maybe we can find some personal dirt on the guy, right? Like, maybe Daniel cheated on a math test in third grade, or, like, kicked a puppy or or, uh, rooted for Michigan or something evil like that, right? They couldn't find anything. They couldn't find anything on this guy. You know, I was trying to think about what Daniel, what kind of guy Daniel's like. Daniel's the kind of guy that, like, actually reads all the terms and conditions before signing up for something. He doesn't just check the box like the rest of us, right? Like, he, he's, he's incredible here. Uh, so much so, he, he's so awesome that I think it, it's easy to read this and almost feel discouraged, right, by how incredible his character is. It almost seems like this picture of Daniel is unattainable. Uh, at least I, I felt that way reading it, right? But I think we have to be careful because the point here is not that Daniel was perfect, right? He's a human being like the rest of us. The point here is that Daniel's professional life matched his personal life, right? That that Daniel was, he was faithful, he was responsible and trustworthy in all areas of his life. The point here is that Daniel was a very consistent kind of guy all across the board, right? And he wasn't just consistent in his character, and consistent in his profession. Check out what this next verse tells us. It says, finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. And so Daniel wasn't just consistent in his career and in his character. 
he was consistent in his commitment to his God, right? That if these guys knew one thing after observing Daniel's life and after conducting their investigation, they knew that this dude was faithful to his God and to the law of his God. Later on in the chapter, it's going to be repeated multiple times that Daniel was the kind of guy who continually served his God. That's just what he was known for. That was his reputation. All right. And I think if there's one word that maybe summarizes this, this description of Daniel that we see in these first few verses, I think it's this word. I think it's the word integrity. All right. I think it's integrity. I think this is the best way to describe Daniel's life after he's faithfully served God for so many years in Babylon. And so this word integrity, it comes from the word integer, meaning like a whole or complete number, right? Like not a fracture. And I think that's actually a really helpful way to kind of think about this whole idea of integrity. Because for example, in, uh, in our world, it's pretty normal for people to have like multiple selves, right? Like we'll kind of have our personal self and then we'll have our work self. And then maybe for those of us who follow Jesus, we'll also, we'll also have like our church or faith self as well. And depending on what context we find ourselves in, that'll kind of determine how we act. That'll determine which self kind of comes out, right? And maybe there's even a self that we uh, most want to like live out of, but in certain circumstances or with certain groups of people, we might just be tempted to kind of compromise on that, to be a little bit more flexible with who we are though, right? That's pretty normal in our world, but not so with Daniel, right? I mean, you look at this picture of Daniel in this chapter, and Daniel is whole. Daniel, Daniel is complete, right? Daniel's personal self, his, his work self, and his faith self were all consistent. Daniel is not fractured, he's one. And Daniel doesn't act according to the circumstances he found himself in. He acts according to his beliefs, his principles, his values, Right? In this chapter, Daniel lives very consistently with his convictions. And because of that, because of Daniel's integrity, he shines brightly. He illuminates in Babylon. He distinguishes himself, his wholeness distinguishes himself from the rest of a very fractured world that he lives in and that we live in as well. Right? And I think this picture here is so helpful for those of us who follow Jesus in this room. And for those of us who hope to shine brightly for Jesus, right? I think this tells us that all of ourselves matter, right? Like, like our private self and our public self, our, 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 our um, personal self and our work self. All of those things matter if we're trying to shine brightly for Jesus and stand out in this world for him. I love the way Philippians 2, a passage in the New Testament, talks about this idea, such a sweet verse. It says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God uh, without fault in a warped, warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. What a cool verse, right? That, that, I, that word pure there, it's this idea of being unmixed. It's this idea of being consistent that we're talking about, Right? And it says we need to do everything this way, meaning we need to use our words and our actions in all circumstances in a way that is consistent with our faith in Jesus. And that when we do that, we will shine among the world 
like stars in the sky. What an, what an incredible passage, right? What an incredible picture of what that looks like. And I think the opposite is very true as well. You know, I, I think inconsistency and hypocrisy are probably one of the best ways to darken our, our witness to the world, all right? In fact, you might be in this room and maybe you're kind of investigating Jesus and one of your primary hesitancies about embracing Jesus is your experience with so many hypocritical followers of Jesus, all right? Maybe the followers of Jesus you interacted with have lived very inconsistent lives. Well, if that's you, I mean, I just wanna say like, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you've had that experience and I'm sorry that I've contributed to that in some ways because I know I have, right? I know it's not very helpful at all to live inconsistently uh, with our faith because that's not who Jesus is, and not at all, all right? And I know it would be much more helpful to you if you had more Daniels in your life, more people who live consistently with the God that they claim to believe in because Daniel's life certainly did look that way. Actually, so much so that we're gonna see that these, his jealous coworkers, they formulate a plan to trap Daniel solely based on his integrity, solely based on his unwillingness to compromise. Check it out in this next verse. It says, so these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revealed. So these jealous co-workers, they approach the new king, and they kind of, they try to flatter his ego a little bit, right? They call him, all right, may the king live forever, your majesty. We, we, we have an idea. You should be the only one who's allowed to be prayed for, or prayed to for the next 30 days, Right? And that if anybody disregards this decree, well, they should be thrown into the lion's den, which was a popular form of execution in the day. And notice, too, that they say if King Darius goes through with this decree, uh, that it won't be able to be altered. It won't, it'll be, uh, it won't be able to be changed. And so other passages in the Bible, as well as other historical documents, attest to the fact that in the Medes and Persian culture, there was this law that when a king passed a decree, he couldn't even change it at that point, right? And so the point is here that if Darius goes through with this, there's no going back. It is an unchangeable circumstance at that point, right? So look what happens. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Not good, right? And now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, when Daniel learned that this decree had been published, man, if there was ever a time to compromise kind of seems like now would be a good time, right? If there was ever a time to be just a little bit more flexible, maybe, on your convictions and your lifestyle, seems like now would be a pretty sweet time to do that. Pretty easy to justify that, right? Because Daniel had just learned about the decree that would have made praying to his God essentially life-threatening. But look at what Daniel does. It says, now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home. To his upstairs room, where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees, and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. What an incredible verse, right? That's just awesome. 
man, this is, this is when Daniel learned about the decree, he prays, just as he always had. You know, think about how easy it would have been for Daniel just to, just to take a break from prayer, maybe. Right? It was, it was only 30 days. Like, couldn't he have taken a month off? Or, or couldn't have Daniel justified maybe just praying differently for that month? Why don't you go pray in your basement or, or, or pray quietly to yourself? It would have been so easy to compromise on his integrity here. But instead, Daniel prays just as he always has, just as he had done before, right? With the windows open towards Jerusalem. You know, that's a pretty interesting phrase. Uh, commentators would point out that that phrase actually gives us an indication of what Daniel was praying for in this moment. Because earlier on in Israel's history, uh, King Solomon, a, a famous king that actually came after King David, he would build the temple in Jerusalem. And at the dedication of this temple, 1 Kings chapter 8, it records for us a prayer that he gives. And in that prayer, he, he, King Solomon says, if there's ever a time in the future when God's people find themselves in exile, taken off to a far off land, and if they turn back to God in their hearts and pray towards the temple in Jerusalem, God will hear their prayer, he'll forgive their sin and rebellion, and he'll rescue them. And here's Daniel in Babylon, in exile, in a far-off land. And he is on his knees praying towards Jerusalem that man, God would rescue his people. All right. That even though Daniel wasn't afraid to engage in the broken world that he lived in, he was praying that God would do something about it. All right. That, you know, Daniel was praying... Uh, for praying like Jesus told us to pray, essentially, right? That, that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, right? The praying that broken Babylon would be transformed. And I think this is such a helpful picture for how we can pray and live today. Because I think in this picture, we see that Daniel was highly engaged in the broken world around him, but highly committed to seeing it transformed, Right? Daniel's aim and his goal at involving himself in the world was to see God change it. Right? That's what he was doing. And so the Bible tells us he prays like this three times a day, just as he had done before, which I think is another very key phrase here, because Daniel, who at this point in the chapter was probably 80 years old, has developed this lifetime habit of kneeling first, right? And so what we see here, this isn't just like a riot against the law. Like Daniel didn't just start praying this way when the decree passed just to make a point about his freedom, right? That's not what's going on here. You know, Daniel would have understood the temple in Jerusalem as God's throne. That was the place where the true king reigned from. And so what we see here is Daniel is praying not out of rebellion against King Darius, but out of obedience and devotion to the true king. That's why later on, Daniel will even say that he's innocent against King Darius because he wasn't trying to make a point here. It's just that this decree wasn't going to let him compromise on this habit and this rhythm of bowing to his God in prayer that he's developed over a lifetime. Right? And actually, he wouldn't have even been found out if it wasn't for this band of jealous coworkers that were after him. So they kind of set this trap, right? They, and they knew Daniel was a man of integrity, not willing to compromise. And they were right. 
They find him praying to his God, and so they run, and they tattle on him to the king, right? And so look at how the king responds in verse 14. It says, when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed, and he was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. So King Darius, as gullible as he is, he finally sees kind of what's going on here, right? That his best employee, uh, he's been tricked into condemning him. And so it says that he was greatly distressed, and that he even went as far as doing everything he can, making every effort until sundown to rescue Daniel. And so clearly, Darius really loved Daniel, right? Uh, and I think this just gives greater evidence of Daniel's love and care for the earthly kings he served, as, as corrupt and as crazy as they were. But again, for the third time in this chapter, it's repeated that there is nothing the king can do to overturn this decree, right? That they, are, they find themselves in an unchangeable circumstance. And so after trying everything that the king can, he's forced to throw Daniel into the lion's den. But look what he says to him right before he does this. This is so awesome. He says, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. What a powerful statement. Because think about this. Here we have probably the most powerful person in the whole entire world at this time, admitting that he is powerless to do something that Daniel's God can, right? You know, King Darius, he might be narcissistic and he might be gullible, but at least he could see what it took so long for King Nebuchadnezzar to figure out, that no matter how much power you have on this earth, there is a God in heaven who is ultimately in control. There is a truly sovereign one, right? So look what happens. It says, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. And so now at this point, Daniel's God is truly the only one who can save him now that he's in the sealed tomb, right? And it says, the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. And so even though Darius shows like some level of faith that maybe Daniel's God can rescue Daniel, he's still freaking out, right? He's still worried. The Bible says he couldn't sleep, he couldn't eat, he, he didn't even want any entertainment, right? So imagine being too stressed to even watch Netflix, like this guy's freaking out right now, right? But the next day comes and it says that at the first light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? So as soon as dawn comes, Darius runs to see if his friend made it through the night. And he cries out to Daniel in an anguished voice. And Daniel answers. Miracle. <laughs> right there, right? That Daniel was even able to make it through the night to answer. But I think just as crazy is how Daniel responds. He says, may the king live forever. You know, think about this. It, it, how would we think that Daniel would respond after this dude pretty much for no reason threw him in the lion's den? 
probably like, yes, you jerk, now get me out of here, right? Like, it, that'd be so easy, right, to, to kind of erupt in that moment. But no, he says, may the king live forever. Daniel is so gracious. He, he's so kind. Even the fear of death can't get Daniel to compromise on his respect towards others. And think about the tr- contrast going on here, and, and specifically in this passage between King Darius and Daniel. Darius, the most powerful human on the planet, is sleepless, he's distressed, he's in anguish over this whole situation. On the other hand, the text gives no indication that Daniel, who trusted in the true king of the universe, is nothing but uh, steady and calm, right? Very different picture between these two individuals. So look at the rest of Daniel's response. He says, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And so just like God did in Daniel chapter three when, his, when Daniel's friends were in the furnace, God sends an angel to rescue Daniel. And it even says that he's able to rescue him with not even a single scratch left on Daniel. And so Daniel trusted in his God and lived with integrity even in the face of death. And Daniel's God came through and rescued him, right? And so I'll summarize the rest of the chapter because it ends in a pretty similar fashion actually to those that have come before it. Uh, For example, we see another king kind of have a a major overreaction. So King Darius, he would actually throw all those who falsely accused Daniel and their families into the lion's den. So he's pretty crazy and unreasonable like the rest of the kings. But then the chapter ends with another edict from from a foreign king going out to all nations and all people saying that, from King Darius, saying that Daniel's God should be feared and should be worshiped because he is the true God the one who is able to save, and the one with an everlasting kingdom. And so because of Daniel's faith, because of his integrity and his unwillingness to compromise, God's name is proclaimed throughout to, to the whole world. Right? What an incredible passage of scripture. Right? We can see why this passage is so famous. Uh, you know? And so I think there's a few key things, though, that we can take away from this chapter I think there's some very helpful insights for us as we try to live with integrity in today's world, right? And so I think the first thing is this. It's that we must be careful of the more subtle ways we compromise our faith. We have to be careful of this. You know, think about it in this chapter. Daniel wasn't tempted to break any commands of God necessarily, right? Like, like there wasn't a temptation to give into a clear-cut sin, like we saw in chapter three when they were told to bow down uh, to uh, uh, the power um, of the statue. But I think what we see here is the more dangerous temptation to compromise on his devotion to God, right? It wasn't a temptation to commit sin, but omit devotion. And I think it's this temptation, this kind of compromise that we are in greater danger of giving into in today's world. You know, of letting the temptation of the American dream, of more money and more stuff, compromise our devotion to giving to God's kingdom with our time and our energy and our resources. 
or letting the temptation of consumerism that absolutely permeates our culture, right, compromise our call as followers of Jesus to love and serve our neighbors, to be a blessing to this world. We're letting the temptation of individualism compromise our involvement in biblical community and building relationships where we give ourselves to one another and believing the lie that, man, we, we don't need others. We can do it on our own, right? Or for some of us, maybe it's the temptation of singleness and the sexual ethic of our day compromise us from living out God's vision for marriage and sexuality, Right? And, you know, these situations, they might not be life or death like the ones that Daniel and his friends found themselves in. But I think that the consequences of compromising are still just as devastating. You know, instead of immediate death, it's this slow drift of being taken away by that current, by that cultural current into a place of nominal faith and absolutely powerless witness. Because we cannot shine in Babylon if we give in to compromise, right? And that leads me to the second takeaway, that uh, integrity is built over a lifetime, one decision at a time. You know, these first six chapters in Daniel, they take place over the course of more than 60 years. As I said, by the time we get to Daniel chapter six, Daniel is in his 80s, most likely. And in these chapters, we get these monumental high points of faith from Daniel and his friends. Right? There's like some big moments where they take a stand for their faith. Right? The lion's den, the furnace, some of these incredible moments of faith. But I think Daniel chapter 6, it also gives us a window into the rest of Daniel's life. Right? It speaks of his integrity and his commitment to serve God in all areas of life. It speaks to his daily habit developed over a lifetime of bowing to his God three times a day. Right, I think it's easy to view this chapter and be like, how in the world was Daniel able to not compromise in a moment as big as the lion's den? And I think it's because Daniel's integrity wasn't built on big moments alone, but it was built around a whole entire life of serving God in the big and the small. Right, that's what it was repeated time and time again. That's what Daniel was known for. I think Daniel saw every day as an opportunity to resist compromise and to devote himself to God. And man, I think that's so important and helpful for us as well. You know, if our hope is that if it ever comes to it, to take these big monumental stands for our faith, well, I think that can only come out of a life that is devoted to serving God in the small things, right? And I think Daniel 6 reveals to us that one of the best ways to, to uh, resist the drift, to resist compromising our faith, is to develop habits and rhythms, like Daniel did, of devoting himself to God. Habits that both free us from entangling ourselves in the brokenness of our world, and habits that cultivate a life of loving God and loving our neighbors. Right? And I don't know if you guys have any habits like that, uh, or if you even thought of your habits and rhythms that way, but if you're looking to form some new ones or, or, or to start something like that, I just want to throw out this book suggestion that I found very helpful in doing this. It's called The Common Rule by uh, Justin Early. And so this book here, it's a pretty easy read. Uh, it's like only 140 pages or so, and it's about the formative power of our habits and rhythms, good or bad, right? In this book, he gives some real practical ways to include some habits in our lives that both free us from the anxiety of our world and tether us to Jesus. 
And interestingly enough, the first habit that he suggests is kneeling prayer three times a day, just like Daniel, which is really cool. And so I encourage you guys to read something like this or talk about maybe in your life group or something, some habits and rhythms that, you can, that we can build in our lives to build that integrity and that faith in our God, right? Because like I said, Daniel in this chapter, he's not perfect. I, I don't think that's what it's saying. You know, it's easy to look at his seemingly perfect character and think that. But I think what we're seeing in this chapter is just Daniel's integrity that's built over a lifetime of faithfully serving God. And that leads me to this last takeaway. And with this one, I'll invite up the band as we close out. But I think as important as Daniel chapter 6 is uh, for for giving us an example to live up to uh, of Daniel's integrity and his faith, I think more importantly, what Daniel 6 does is it gives us a picture of our true king. I think that's actually what's going on here. And so, you know, Tony, he's been saying throughout this series that uh, Daniel and his friends resolved faith. It didn't come from just like sheer grit and determination. That's not what's going on here, right? Yes, of course, they exerted themselves in living out this resolved faith. They definitely did that. But it was rooted in their view of God, right? And so the question is, well, what kind, what view of God leads us to live a life of integrity in an age of compromise? And as I was studying Daniel chapter 6 these past couple weeks, Man, I just couldn't help but see all the similarities between Daniel's story and Jesus' story, you know? You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus, he was appointed as the true king over the world by God himself, but that the religious leaders of his day, they, they were jealous of him. They conspired against him, setting traps and falsely accusing him. And just like Daniel, Jesus was handed over to the power of his day, Rome, And just like Daniel, Jesus was unwilling to compromise his devotion to God. But instead of God rescuing Jesus from the beast, Jesus was crushed by the beast. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross and buried in a sealed tomb. Jesus faced the ultimate unchanging circumstance of death itself. But the Bible tells us that God raised Jesus from the dead and that he is exalted over the world. Now the true ruler of this world with an everlasting kingdom that reaches to the ends of the earth, even Medina County, right? And I think Daniel chapter 6, this story of the lion's den, I think what it does is it prepares us to meet the true king of the world, Jesus Christ. And I think it's when we get a glimpse of King Jesus that we're able to live in unwavering devotion to him. I think it's when we see the God who went to the lion's den for us and who conquered the grave and rose up out of it and now is the true king of the world. When we see that God, we can live with integrity in an age of compromise. I think that's what we see in Daniel chapter 6. Let's pray. Lord, um, God, thank you for this just incredible passage of Scripture, Lord. God, thank you for your word and the way that it can speak to us and teach us. God, thank you for Daniel's example of integrity and faith here. This amazingly consistent life, Lord, that you, that you call us to and you call your followers to. And Lord, I pray that we would be able to live into lives like these, like this, Lord, where all of ourselves matter, God, where they're all consistent,
And God, I pray that this would all come out of a, a view of you, Lord, that we would see that you are the God who is consistent, Lord. You are the one who sent your son Jesus to live and to die for us and to give us new life, that we can live this way, God. And Lord, I pray that as we see that, we would be transformed, God. We would be transformed into people of integrity, God, in this, in this world that is uh, increasingly uh, trying to take us away, Lord. And God, I pray that as we do that, as we live with integrity in this world, God, we would be the church you've called us to be, Lord, a light on a hill to this world, Lord, that needs you. God, people who shine like stars in this dark and lost world, Lord, pointing people to the true king. And God, I pray that we could do this increasingly by your grace, Jesus. God, we need you for this, Lord, so would you transform our lives even now? God, we pray all this in your name. Amen.